of the Buddha said, There is one thing, O practitioners, the not seen of, which keeps you bound. What is the one thing that you're not seeing? Suffering. And this should, I think, resonate as being true. I felt like this exact teaching is what first caught my attention well before I began studying the teachings of the Buddha. But even in high school, I kind of got that, that there is the one thing that the not seen of which keeps this heart bound. And I saw it personally, I saw it around me. How being unaware of the experience of dukkha, like being so busy running, so busy keeping busy with life, and if something interrupts our habit of running, keeping busy, we might notice something like, oh, I'm running away from being uncomfortable. I'm running away from the experience of being dissatisfied. And it's the not seeing that that's what's going on. Like, if we can't see suffering, we can't be free from suffering. This is really the essence of the first noble truth. The reason I thought it would be useful, and you might want to do this in your daily sitting practice for a while, I thought it would be useful to break down experience into the six sense gates because it radically simplifies what we take this life to be. We realize, if you do this systematically for a while, you realize that there is never anything more than these six things being known. Seeing is being known, hearing is being known, touching is being known, smell and taste is being known, and thoughts are being known. And so, this teaching on dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, the unreliableness of life, then that means with these six things. So are these six things satisfying or are they unsatisfying? This is a question we can actually investigate. We don't want to believe that these six things put together which make up my life or satisfying, or we don't want to believe that they're not satisfying, we want to take a really close look, not just once, but over and over and over again. What is the experience of these six things? You know, it's just interesting, like right now, we have these six things, sound, sight, smell, taste, touch, and thought. Each one of us, we have these six things. They are being known. So is it satisfying, this experience or not? One of the things, maybe you noticed this, but one of the things can be noticed in meditation is, or any time we sort of settle down, it's like how uh, there's a, a basic reflex, avoiding Settling down. You know, we settle down, settle down, and then it isn't long before we reach for the radio or something to eat. It's like, it's interesting, even though 
there's so much evidence that it's healing to settle down, to relax, to let put things down. But we don't really do it very often. But why is that? And then when we do do it, we go right from, you know, rushing, basically, to being unconscious. There's no sort of consciously putting things down. Consciously, like wakefully relaxing. So I'm not saying we don't go unconscious. We seem to do that pretty frequently, regularly, in, in all kinds of different ways. But that settling down and with a clear, alert mind. And why? Well, I think we tend to notice something we'd rather not notice, which is this, these six things being known, isn't satisfying. And it, and in it not being satisfying, there's a strong tendency to run. To run from the dissatisfaction. Or to run toward what we imagine would be satisfying. And in that way, all life long, we keep missing this opportunity to learn something about the experience of dissatisfaction or dukkha. Or as the Buddha says, there's the one thing, O practitioners, talking to us, the not seen of which keeps you bound, keeps us bound up in cycles of suffering, cycles of stress. What is the one thing that we're not seeing? We're not seeing the experience of dissatisfaction. Either because we're telling ourselves this is satisfying, which is partly true, some of the time when our life uh, has this particular appearance where we think, this is what I've always wanted, so it has to be satisfying. We don't actually check whether it's satisfying. We impose the idea it is satisfying. I'm with my honey, I'm, I'm home in bed, or I have the food that I want, or I got the job I always wanted. So therefore, regardless of my actual experience, I'm just going to tell myself, this is satisfying. This is great. Really, it's great. <laughs> But we never bother to actually check. Is it great? How is it? These six things right now being known, bodies being known, sight, sound, smell, taste, all being known, thoughts are being known. How is this experience? Is it in a profound, pervasive way satisfying? Or is it in a profound and pervasive way unsatisfying? This. And it's, you know, it's like such a relevant truth to investigate, like, is my life satisfying or not? Because if we really got that it was unsatisfying, we would, you know, what I would do, like, I, I think just probably hardwired into our minds is we'd experiment. Well, let me try something else and see if life becomes more satisfying or less satisfying. Initially, we would try relatively gross things, and we realized that doesn't really change much. And then we begin to discover what the Buddha discovered, which is, well, the thing that seems to have the most to do with how unsatisfying or satisfying the mom moment is, isn't the conditions of the moment. It's how the mind is related to the conditions of the moment. So we begin to experiment with that. And then we start to make some headway. We start to see, 
oh, I could be relating in a particular way that would make this moment really unsatisfying, really hard to bear. Or I could be relating to the moment, to these six things, in a way that would make the moment be relatively light and easy to bear. And the dukkha would be very subtle, hard to even see. And maybe in moments not seeing any dukkha at all, any dissatisfaction at all. So when we look at the six things, the mind and then the body, the five physical senses, so that's what we mean by the body and the mind, we look at it and we see that it's constantly in flux and we're seeing that because the mind and body are in motion, it's a process in motion, there's really no ground there. So the sense of self, the sense of me that's looking for satisfaction, doesn't find it in this fluid process experience of body and mind. It's so impersonal and unsatisfying. So we're always, the sense of me who's seeking satisfaction always is having a problem with life as it is. And this basic underlying tension is really at the root of dukkha. So dukkha is talked about in three ways. And one of the articles, uh, one of those, uh, I guess, articles that I put up on the website is this discourse of the Buddha where he talks about the three types of dukkha. So there's dukkha-dukkha, which is just the dukkha of physical or mental pain. Mental distress, physical pain. This dukkha we understand. And then there's the dukkha of change. So even when things are pleasant, there's some sense of this pleasant experience being fragile, eventually going to change. And it ruins it to the degree we're honest with ourselves. The one, me, who wants this pleasant thing to really be there for me knows it's not always going to be there for me. And that is a kind of dukkha. It's stressful. It's hard to bear knowing that everything we like and have now, like our health or our whatever, the comforts that we have in our life, that everything will be taken. Nothing can be held on in any eternal way. And whether we're consciously aware of this or not, it creates dukkha, stress, knowing that the fragility of all nice things. And then this last kind of dukkha, sankara dukkha, really points to what I was saying a few moments ago, that this, uh, this basic sense of these underlying characteristics, like that life is this ongoing changing process of body and mind the mind in terms of the activity of the mind, mental activity, and the body in terms of seeing and hearing and touching and smelling and tasting. This is an ongoing changing process. There is no ground here. And the one, me, who wants ground, wants satisfying ground, it isn't going to find it in the body-mind process. And just any to, to any degree that the mind is honest about that, that's a fundamental dissatisfaction. Because it, it's a recognition that an, or an intuition that life cannot deliver 
satisfaction. So that's uh, that's like the ultimate betrayal. Because the basic delusion, you know, the Buddha would call this delusion or ignorance, but we all live with it in a very strong way. So it's common sense. It seems like common sense to us, but the Buddha would call this basic human ignorance, worldly ignorance. We think that the world is here to deliver a satisfying experience, a satisfying life for us. It's like, don't we basically think that that's the purpose of the world, is to provide satisfaction. And so, we take up our competence, or skill, we apply ourselves, or willpower, intention, to kind of manifest, to get what we can get from life. We're all, are we all, I mean, when you, when we look at the efforts we've made just today, maybe getting ourselves to common ground, it's all part of the strategy to get from life something that's satisfying. And, uh, you know, to be grounded in something that will make us happy. And then this deeper intuition that, that begins to arise as we are more honest and more wakeful in life, which is, oh my God, in the very fabric of life, I'm seeing this is not what it's about. It isn't about delivering satisfaction to me. Now, this is where it's really important to understand that waking up to dukkha is a noble, enlivening, and liberating truth, not a depressing, because it sounds really depressing. Like, well, what are we left with? But the thing is, we actually have to see that about life, that it isn't here to deliver satisfaction to me. Because in seeing that, what does our heart do? When the heart sees that or begins to intuit it, what does the heart do? It radically changes its relationship to life. So now it's relating to life not in order to get something that will be uh, last, in a lasting way satisfying, permanently satisfying. Because it doesn't believe that. It doesn't, it is fooled by that idea, that conditioned idea that that's what life is here to do. It's to make us happy. And you can break this down in any way. Our partners aren't here to make us happy. Our wealth, our money, our food, our weather, our communities, they're not here to make us happy. Sometimes they make us happy in a a relative, super, superficial way, and sometimes these things make us unhappy. They do not provide lasting satisfaction. So, the heart undergoes a paradigm shift, where instead of thinking that the world is here to deliver us happiness, we see that the world is here to let go of. And surprisingly, there's a lot of liberation so, the liberation comes not from finding something in the world that will give us what we're looking for. The liberation is in not seeking anything from this life, this world. Now, again, in words, this sounds a little morbid. The question is, what is the actual experience of the heart not trying to get anything from a moment of experience? It really sets the heart free. 
So I really want us to begin this study of dukkha with this understanding that dukkha is a liberating, ennobling, and enlivening insight. By uncovering, by using these teachings to reflect on the unsatisfying nature of our direct experiencing over and over and over again, it causes the heart to let go in a way that is enlivening and liberating. And we want to check that out, see if that's actually true. And the thing is, we're already doing this in, in moments at least, but the question is, we may not be correlating the release with the heart in that moment, not seeking satisfaction from the experience of the moment. And that's the important. We need to link up. Like That's really the definition of insight, is when the mind, the wakefulness, the mindfulness is continuous enough that it's able to correlate the way it's relating, the way it's understanding, with the release or the lightness or the freedom that comes. And the way that it's relating with the entanglement and the burdensomeness and the heaviness of the heart. So that we're understanding, well, there are different ways to relate to this life, to the way it is. Some ways of relating are skillful and some are not. So in this sense, the Buddha is not this, uh, you know, perfect relativist, like nothing matters. It does matter how we relate. It really matters. I mean, and this is what we can directly learn. So we actually have, we have something to learn or to wake up to. First, we have to have a sense that it matters how the mind relates, how the mind understands. And then we have to go about, in a systematic way, uncovering the way to understand or the way to relate that is ultimately liberating. And the ways of relating that are not liberated at all, that are quite heavy and oppressive and entangled and hard to bear. But you see how we need the barometer of dukkha to do this. It's like if we don't understand clearly the experience of dissatisfaction, there's no way to begin to discern what way of being, what way of relating is liberating, and what way of relating is not liberating. Because dukkha is the barometer. Without understanding the present moment experience of the heart being stressed or oppressed or dissatisfied, we can't see the cause. How can the heart let go if it doesn't see the cause? It has to see it. So when we are feeling oppressed, so this is like uh, the basic premise for this particular eight-week class is, you know, we should be happy during the day and in our formal sitting times. We should be happy when we clearly recognize that we're a suffering human being. Because then, and only then, is there the opportunity to recognize in that moment, to correlate the experience of being a suffering human being with the view that's leading to the experience of stress or suffering. Oh, it is this understanding, it is this relationship to experience, these six things, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, 
reality is only these six things. It's never more than the knowing of these six things. So it just means the way the mind is relating to these six things, the way the mind is knowing these six things, is causing this experience of oppression or stress or suffering. And it's got to be right now and right here. If there is stress, if there is a sense of, I'm a somebody who's suffering, who's not happy, who feels oppressed, then there's something right now in the knowing of these six things that can be seen. But that discovery requires the uh, recognition of dukkha. And in the same way, when we feel free from suffering, free from stress, not oppressed, then it's also quite useful to look at how the mind is relating in that moment. Like, what's, what is the mind not doing? Or how is the mind relating? What is it taking thought to be, sound to be, sight to be, touch to be? How is it relating to the ache in the hip? or the pain in the knee, or the thought in the mind. What is that relationship? And you'll notice, you know, a particular way of relating. You know, we say, and the words aren't all that helpful, but helpful enough, you know, that when the mind is just letting things be nature, it's not a problem. Nature comes and goes. When the mind is taking these six things to be self, all of a sudden things get oppressive and tight and heavy. So, uh, in terms of this course, we don't want to be afraid of, of letting our lived experience, like putting front and center this experience of dissatisfaction and stress, of course, we can get overwhelmed with that, in which case we want to refresh the mind. Like, don't pay attention to it when you're feeling totally overwhelmed by it. Pay attention to the pleasantness. It's like, this is the great art of practice. It all has to do with what the mind is paying attention to. So we want to pay attention to dukkha, especially in light of the course, this material we're studying these eight weeks. But if we're, uh, if we have the wrong approach or the sort of the sense of being overwhelmed by dukkha, then paying attention to dukkha isn't going to be helpful. It's just going to reinforce the idea that I'm somebody who's overwhelmed by dukkha. So that's the time to say to yourself, don't pay attention to the dukkha. Pay attention to something neutral or something pleasant, something that uh, is beautiful, wherever, however you can do that. Because then the mind gets refreshed has a little space, just like we did in the opening, the guided sit that I offered, you know, I, I suggested to us that, well, let's take some time and make the mind really simple. Just really gather the attention around something simple like feeling the breath coming and going or feeling the body sitting and really doing that with real persistence, real dedicated, wholehearted effort, persistence, in order to leave behind the world that's agitating plans that we have, the to-do list, the worries, the judgments. And we're just there, knowing the breath coming in, coming in, knowing the breath going up. And it's so healing and calming and blissful to let go. So 
you can pay attention to something neutral, or you can pay attention to something beautiful, like the loving-kindness phrases. You really give yourself to them, and it makes the heart feel whole again, and resilient, and refreshed. And then you can take up your study of dukkha again. So don't feel like just be, when you're oppressed and everything looks negative and heavy, and not all mark or the Buddha is telling you to pay attention to dukkha, well, that's not going to help. You need to refresh the mind, however long that it takes. But when you do feel refreshed, then realize that the basic uh, um, guide star for, for insight is dukkha and the end of dukkha. This is what the Buddha taught. Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. So we want to really use the actual experience of Dukkha, of stress, dissatisfaction, to help the mind recognize wrong view, the correlate to the experience of dissatisfaction, which is taking things personally. But the actual wrong view, that's words, you know, taking things personally are just the words that can help reveal that actual experience of personalizing, grasping, clinging to these six things. And we always see that when we're taking person, when the mind is grasping, you know, grasping the aggregates of experience, as the Buddha might say, then there's dissatisfaction, there's stress, there's friction, things are heavy. Both formally and now, it is only dukkha that I describe, and the cessation of dukkha. That's the Buddha. And what have I declared? This is suffering, I have declared. This is the origin of suffering, I have declared. This is the cessation of suffering, I have declared. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering, I have declared. And why have I declared that? Because it is beneficial. It belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life. It leads to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to the direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. That is why I have declared it. I sent you this document. Um, I think it was Ajahn Tanisara put this together, just some quotes on Dukkha from the Buddha. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha, association with the unbeloved is dukkha, separation from the loved is dukkha, not getting what is wanted is dukkha, in short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. If you don't know this list, which is one of the things we study in the course of the Buddhist studies classes, the five aggregates just another description of body and mind that we've been talking about. So, one description of body and mind are in terms of the six sense mental activity, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. Another description of this body-mind experience is in terms of the five aggregates, which is the body, the form, and then four aspects of the mind, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, which is just four ways of talking about the mind, or four aspects of the mind and body. So, that's an even more common way the Buddha talked about this, what we call this life, is the five aggregates, and he said, it is the clinging to the five aggregates. The mind 
misunderstanding the way that it is, relating to this, taking it personally, the body-mind personally, the experience of the body-mind personally, that leads to the experience of dukkha, stress. This is a more contemporary definition by a recent author. Disturbance, irritation, dejection, worry, despair, fear, dread, uh, anguish, anxiety, vulnerability, injury, inability, inferiority, sickness, aging, decay of body and faculties, senility, pain and pleasure, pleasure, excitement and boredom, deprivation and excess, desire and frustration, suppression, longing, aimlessness, hope and hopelessness, effort and activity, striving and repression, loss, want, insufficiency, love, lovelessness, friendlessness, dislike, aversion, attraction, parenthood, childlessness, submission, rebellion, decision, indecision, vacillation, and uncertainty. Now, like I mentioned earlier, it's important not to think that that's all there is, is dukkha. As I mentioned a few moments ago, we can, and it's actually a useful training, to train the mind to see what's beautiful and pleasant. There actually is or are pleasant experiences, which is good, because otherwise we would think we're really crazy. Because it does seem like things at times are really beautiful and pleasant. So, uh, one time the Buddha said, I'll just read it here, Seeking satisfaction in the world, practitioners, I have pursued my way. That satisfaction in the world I found. Insofar as satisfaction existed in the world, I have well perceived it by wisdom. Seeking misery in the world, right, or stress or dukkha. Practitioners, I have pursued my way. That misery, that dukkha in the world, I found. Insofar as dukkha exists in the world, I have well perceived it by wisdom. Seeking for the escape from the world, I pursued my way. That escape from the world I found. Insofar as an escape from the world exists, I have well perceived it by wisdom. If there were no satisfaction to be found in the world, beings would not be attached. If there were no misery to be found in the world, beings would not be repelled by the world. If there were no escape from the world, beings could not escape therefrom. So, this should be helpful. There are real, actual experiences of pleasantness and beauty in life, and this is why it's confusing. Because we actually have moments of real satisfaction, although temporary, we have the sense that it might be lasting. Maybe with some effort, with some work, I could set it up so this really pleasant experience that I'm having could be forever. I mean, there's nothing like being, you know, because we're social beings, there's really nothing quite like uh, being held, not, not even physically 
help by another human being, or maybe even any being, any living being, but just somehow feeling completely met, um, received, loved by another human being. That is such a satisfying, pleasant, and healing experience. And we probably, you know, it would actually be a very skillful thing for us to do, maybe not with a group of 75 people, but a group of three people, to spend an evening relaying to each other all of the moments of your life where you felt completely held, received, loved, accepted by another human being. That would be, it would be contagious, actually, to hear that. We like to hear that. We like to see it in the movies. You know, that healing moment where somebody is, is forgiving another person or accepting another person. So there is, there are these pleasant experiences, but it's interesting when we have them, like even if we're really lucky and we've had a lot of those experiences in our life, it's interesting that we're not satisfied. It's like, it's not enough. The self isn't satisfied, even if we're one of the fortunate people to have been raised by healthy parents who loved us and lived in a healthy community where there are a lot of sort of orderliness and a lot of mutual respect and acceptance. Even in those good circumstances, we're just not satisfied. The heart, in a sense, is still hungry, needing more love. Another really satisfying experience. So this should get our attention that, oh, the heart isn't satisfied by pleasant experience, and yet the heart of the mind thinks that by having another satisfying experience that it will be ultimately satisfying. So there's something, there's a delusion here. Like we're not letting life teach us that no matter how many satisfying, pleasant experiences we've had, beautiful experiences we've had, the heart isn't being sated by those experiences. It's still unsatisfied. So then this just begs the question, well, what, what are we missing here? Where is, where does satisfaction lie? Some of you might have uh, Jack Hortfield and Joseph Goldstein's book, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. They have a chapter, chapter 13, on the three characteristics. So and they start with suffering or dukkha and that. So you can pick that up if you want. Or it's actually quite good. So if somebody has a copy, you might as well mark it up um, and wants to scan it, you can send it just the first uh, one, two, three, four, five pages of that chapter, it'd be nice, uh, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. So if anybody has that and wants to scan it for the group, that'd be great. But uh, I'm not sure which of the two wrote this particular chapter, but they just talk about how, like even if you have that perfect Saturday where you don't have to work, you lie in bed, you don't have to get up, but eventually it's not satisfying to lie in bed, so you get up, you know, and then whatever, you have breakfast, you're hungry, you do something, but eventually, you've eaten as much as you're going to eat. It just goes on like that. So if we just observe, even that nice day, just really observe, we'd see that dissatisfaction 
keeps the mind, the heart, restless, always going on and on and on and on. And this is really the uh, sort of the description of this cosmological view of samsara, the endless cycles of suffering, because the approach the heart has to life just leads to dissatisfaction and the seeking of satisfaction and dissatisfaction and the seeking of satisfaction and on and on like that. And we can look. It's really nice to break it down into, like this is what you see on retreat, especially a few days into a residential retreat, because it's such a simple environment. And you just start seeing all the little neurotic ways the body, the mind is trying to get comfortable. You know, just always, it can obsess about little things, about the cushion and how the placement of the cushion or the food or who you're going to sit next to in the dining room and people that bother you and where your walking place is. And, and then you start to notice that all of that's making you crazy. Like trying to line it all up right to make be satisfying is making you crazy. So then maybe you reject it all. Okay, I'm just not going to worry about it. But then you're still dissatisfied. Even that's crazy. Like, the not caring about it, not trying to make yourself comfortable, that doesn't work either. And then if you're lucky, you begin to relax, not in any particular way, but you begin to accept the dissatisfaction, the sort of endless restlessness of the heart. You begin to get interested in it. Because the resolution isn't about some experience. The resolution comes from a change of understanding of that restlessness, of the stressfulness of seeking comfort, seeking satisfaction. We have to change the relationship to that. In other words, it's not personal. That hunger that is actually there in the heart, the, the conditioned habit to seek something comfortable, pleasant, and satisfying, that's not going to go away immediately because it has a lot of momentum. But it's not personal. It's just a conditioned process that has momentum because of what the way it's been in the past. So that can be seen differently. It can be understood as nature instead of as self. And that really is the change that we're looking for. This is uh, from the book, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom, that I mentioned. It is ever-present, so they're talking about dukkha. It is ever-present. It is a central experience of our lives, like water to a fish. As we come to see the pervasive nature of dissatisfaction in our lives, we also see our consuming preoccupation with avoiding it. We create elaborate dramas around our routines, desires, and relationships just so we can lose ourselves in them and not face the underlying hunger. Hunger for contact, for love, for food, for happiness, for comfort, from which they all arise. If we look closely at this hunger, allowing ourselves to experience it fully, we can see that we are constantly driven by it. We can also see the fundamental existential pain in which it is rooted. It is this raw and open, painful place in ourselves that we spend our lives trying to cover up and avoid. We keep running away from the immensity of it. 
And this immensity that they're talking about is the immensity of wrong view or misunderstanding or this sense of a somebody who needs satisfaction. That is that raw essence of the existential heart. As somebody who needs satisfaction. That's the sort of essential hunger there. And they go on, any moment in which we stop doing our dance of running away from it, we can come in contact with this basic primal pain. And if we are ever willing to investigate it with our full attention, if we allow our practice to open to it and feel it completely, in that moment something extraordinary happens. That hunger that drives us and keeps us constantly moving falls away. This falling away happens not because the hunger is bad or because we shouldn't have it, nor because we try to get rid of it. It falls away because the pure in the pure openness of the moment, we no longer need it. When we open to that pain, then we're not creating it. That sense of being hungry, of being the one who needs to be satisfied, needs to be safe, that has to be created moment by moment by moment. So when we radically open to the moment, in that moment, we're not creating that raw wound, that sort of existential wound. So this is the why dukkha is so essential, because it, it will bring us right to this place of wrong view, of doing this activity of wrong view, of being the one who needs experience to be satisfied, needs safety to be safe. But if we open to that yucky, terrible feeling, then there's no more of that feeling. It falls away. Some of you have had this experience in your practice where the mind, heart, body even, tied up in a knot, dukkha, frustration, uneasiness, and then there's a moment of a, relatively speaking, radical opening, acceptance, and then there's a moment of no problem. There was a problem, a very real sense of somebody who had a problem, life is hard, this heart hurts, this is not okay, and then an opening, and then a release, and in that release, nobody, no problem. And with practice, you'll have this experience countless times, and it begins to breed faith that this practice leads to freedom from dukkha no matter the conditions of our lives. So I'll leave it here. We just have a few minutes. We'll have more time. Next week we'll share in small groups. And maybe actually I'll take these last four minutes just to share some reflections we can work on this week. And this could really be the heart of your sharings in the small groups next week. So when we have small groups, there still will be a short talk where we'll save the last 30 minutes or so for the small group work. And I thought these three reflections might be useful, and I'll send them out via the email list and put them on the Buddhist Studies website. But the first is this reflection um, on the experience, this first and most obvious kind of dukkha. So not to go right away to the this existential dukkha that I've been talking about somewhat tonight, but just begin with what's so obvious, basic mental distress or basic physical discomfort. 
and look at your relationship to your mental distress and your physical discomfort. And just get familiar with it. Like, this is to be understood. Dukkha is to be understood. It's not to be run from. It's relevant. So if there's physical pain or discomfort, how the mind is relating to that is relevant. If your heart or mind is distressed, it's relevant. So look at it. Get interested in it. And just ask yourself, like, is the mind willing to see it, to acknowledge it? Oh, yeah, there is this physical discomfort or there is this mental discomfort. And then just to get familiar with the habits around it, like what is your the mind's tendency? How does it tend to relate to physical discomfort or mental distress? You know, like I drink a lot when I'm feeling upset or I eat a lot when I, you know, I shut down in this way or that way when I'm uncomfortable. We call this in Buddhism shooting the second arrow, the second dart. Like, how do we relate to discomfort, basic discomfort of the body and mind in ways that increases the experience of discomfort. That would be good to talk about next week in the small groups. The second reflection would be to uh, pay attention when the opening to dukkha is enlivening and uh, liberating. So, not to think, well, that comes later, but even now, like just acknowledging to yourself that there is dukkha, that's like a breath of fresh air. Like, I don't have to be in denial that life is oppressive a lot of the time. It's like, oh, it's not because I'm bad or I'm stupid that life is oppressive. It's just, that's just how it is. And so then, even right in the beginning, just acknowledging it, that can be somewhat liberating. That, oh yeah, this is just how it is. From this point of view, taking life personally, it is a, an, a, an oppressive experience. From a normal human view, a normal uh, cultural view of life, life is oppressive. Whether you know it or not, it's oppressive. Even if you've got a lot of good fortune in your life, it's oppressive. So that is so normalizing when we hear that. Like, ah, I can't tell you when I first started studying the teachings of the Buddha, it was so good to feel, to hear that. Oh, other people have this perspective that life is oppressive. So that's another thing you might share. And you'd be grateful for it. You could share that gratitude you have about just hearing that in your small groups next week. And then the last thing that you might take up um, is this paradigm shift. Notice the shift in attitude. Can we make peace with dukkha? What is the effect on the heart? when there is acceptance, not fear, or even just interest. So just notice that uh, deepening, you know, sometimes maybe real strong, sometimes faint, but this, uh, like, dukkha is your teacher. It's like a gateway to freedom. There's no other way. I mean, the Buddha says this, there's no other way. It's only through insight into dukkha that liberation is revealed. There's not like another nice way around. So notice that change where there's a respect and even an interest looking for the experience of dukkha. Notice when that comes up, that's another thing you might share in small groups. So any questions before we end the evening that come to mind? And like I said, there will be time for group discussions, large and small, next week. 
So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath or two together. Maybe having a sense of this very deep and wide lineage of human beings, all kinds of beings, rich and poor, young and old, great diversity of human beings that have walked this path, benefited and shared their wisdom, their compassion. We are now the recipients of this lineage of wisdom. Now it's our turn to reflect the practice, our turn to plant the wholesome seeds of peace and freedom from suffering in our hearts and in the world. So may this be 